everyone. Before we begin today's show, just a quick reminder that Michael and Us has a lot more content available at patreon.com slash Michael and Us. We post an extra episode there every week, along with bonus content, including interviews that I do in my day job. A few recent interviews include one with the New Republic's Kate Aronoff on Biden's climate policy, one with British Labour MP John Trickett, and I have another coming soon with Cullen Hoback, the filmmaker behind HBO's Q Into the Storm, which we discussed on a recent episode. So if you enjoy the free episodes and want to hear more, please consider supporting the show at patreon.com slash michaelandus. And don't miss other great podcasts on the Jacobin Radio Network. Podcasts like The Vast Majority with Micah Utrecht, The Dig with Dan Denver, and A World to Win with Grace Blakely. Now, without further ado, on with this week's free episode of Michael and Us. Welcome to Michael and Us. I'm Will Sloan, here as always with... Luke Savage. Welcome back, everyone. Some of our listeners may know that in Ontario, we're in another stage of lockdown as our neighbors to the south are being vaccinated en masse. We're not really experiencing that here. You know, we're having record COVID cases every day in Toronto. And something that I felt happening to me acutely over the last year, and especially lately, is that I've just been a little bit too online. No. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like I need to wean myself off this for a bit. Like last weekend, I took some time in the afternoon to just kind of like sit on the couch and read a book (laughs) almost cover to cover. I was listening to music. And I felt so good. I felt like I'd been in a sensory deprivation tank. And I I was like, this is so much better than constantly scrolling through the internet. And yet there's no there's no local bar to go to. You can't go to your local bar and say hi to Norm and Woody and all your friends, you know, where everybody knows your name. Uh, so what you instead have is the online world. And I know that in my particular sphere of online, I keep seeing all of these meltdowns happening. I keep seeing so many feuds. Uh, I keep seeing people like fighting each other and the timeline, like going to one side or the other. Mine is very much the same these days. And a lot of it is everyone staying in inside a lot and being bored and having nowhere to go. Well, that's that's funny. On, on my side, it's it's that, but it's also the existential trauma of multiple uh, electoral defeats <laughs> for the political left across the world. And there's, of course, you know, the absence of Trump. You know, now that Trump is no longer there to be the, this, like, focal point for everyone's rage, it starts... People start turning on each other. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. I've definitely seen That's why this. Donald Trump was actually a positive force, is what you're saying. Uh, you know, the man made the trains run on time. What can you say? And whenever this erupts on the timeline, I get very excited and I follow it very closely. And, you know, the DMs start lighting up with people, like... Saying, oh, did you see this? Did you see this? Oh, man, fight, 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 you get fight. Those, you get those little hits of dopamine. You ever you ever notice how the uh, the hits of dopamine you get from the little number on the Twitter bell 
Uh, like those are pretty good, but the the ones in the DM folder somehow are even better. Oh, like when yeah. when you you look at the little envelope icon for your DMs, it's got a little blue circle with like the number six or seven on. How exciting is that? <laughs> you know something's up. So I have mixed feelings about this because on the one hand, I do believe that we as human beings have a need for some level of gossip, some level of general. Um, sniping and uh, uh back talk private speculation about the lives of other and activities of others yeah i mean i think all of that is perfectly natural and but then on the other hand you know i think of that lovely afternoon i spent just reading a book and listening to music and i think you know i, I definitely felt much more in touch with myself when i was doing that I, I felt healthier i felt happier so i need to figure out a way to i was going to say a way to kind of like synthesize these two different ways of living but i don't know maybe i just got to cold turkey what do you think well i can definitely speak to this i mean phrases like you know get more in touch with myself they have like the flavor of sort of like new agey hokum um but i can say in my own experience like you know this is a very real thing and it it actually is something that you have to deal with particularly if well everyone is too online in one way or another these days but i think you know certainly in my profession i think there's like a higher than average you know share of people that are you know excessively online and this is something that a few years ago I uh, started to deal with at least. And, um, you know, I've had actually a lot of success at this. Maybe I've uh, shared this on the show before, but back in the day uh, when I was working at the Broadbent Institute, maybe kind of 2016, 2017, around that time, you know, that was like the peak of me being online. And I used to, you know, sleep with, you know, I would sleep with my phone beside my head. And when I would wake up, the phone would wake me up via an alarm And then before even getting out of bed, I'm scrolling, you know, scrolling away, you know, and I'm not, I'm not ashamed to say it. I think it's something a lot of people do. Um, Although, uh, as I'll tell you, it's not something I do anymore. Um, But then, you know, after, after that uh, ritual, I would get up and I would go into work and I'm, you know, riding the TTC and there's like the underground doldrums where the streetcar is underground and there's no Wi-Fi. But then like, apart from that, I'm just, I'm just scrolling. Oh, and those underground doldrums, you feel them. Those, <laughs> yeah. those like 30 seconds when you can't access the internet, you feel it. Yeah, you know, like thir- 30 seconds where you can't follow the latest debate about whether Boba Fett is actually problematic or, <laughs> or whatever. Right. Um, but then, yeah, the, the, the streetcar would, you know, take me to work. I'm scrolling the whole way. I get into the office. And of course, my entire job is just like sitting at a desk. So then I open up my work laptop <laughs> and there and then and where's the first place I go? And then like at the end of the day, same thing. It's like I close down the work laptop, which, you know, the last stop, usually Twitter. I have maybe five minutes. That's being generous of not being online. I'm back on the streetcar. Guess what I'm doing? I mean, you know, and then and then just to put a coat on the story, I get home. You know, I'm in the elevator, another doldrum, you know, another another kind of a Bermuda Triangle along the along the journey where there's, you know, there's no signals and important online debates are lost without a trace. Uh, then I get back into my apartment, open up my home computer and go back onto Twitter. I mean, like it was really bad. I mostly just didn't didn't think about it. But, you know, like in retrospect, you know, it'd be a lie for me to pretend that that didn't like massively impact my productivity, my general sense of well-being, uh, how connected I was to kind of things around me, you know, any kind of just 
I don't know, general awareness of the the moment I was inhabiting at that particular time. Like this stuff does destroy your attention span. You know, it encourages your brain to just constantly jump from like one digression to the next, such that all the digressions have kind of multiple digressions. And I don't need to expand on this too much. Everybody that's listening knows what I'm talking about. But I did actually fix this. You know, like I, I definitely don't think I am anywhere near as kind of addicted to the internet as I once was. And, you know, the first step was deleting all the social media apps from your phone. So you don't you don't need to have Twitter on your phone, I promise. Um, unless you're like a journalist and you're going to events and that's how you're covering them or something, you do not need Twitter or Facebook or any any of that shit on your phone. And with that removed, you know, there's like 40 or 50 or 60 percent of like the incentive to look at the Internet removed right there. So like I did that, I was no longer looking at it in the morning. Uh, I started just not going on the Internet first thing in the morning. I'm taking notes, by the way, as you say all this. This this is this is very good advice. Seriously, it's like before you before you do anything online, do something else like seriously, read a book. I started meditating like and after just a few weeks of doing that every day, my attention span had massively improved. I was able to spend, you know, 30 or 40 minutes reading a book uh, without really thinking about anything except what was in front of me. You know, like the the physical connections in my brain were like repairing themselves <laughs> alongside with my connection to the outside world. It's an amazing thing. Like if I watch, say, a movie by, by Robert Bresson, if I watch L'Argent or I watch A, a Man Escaped, any one viewing of that is so much better, uh, so much more rewarding than any time I've spent online in my life. And yet on a second to second basis, being online is more enjoyable. That's right. Online gives you this kind of instant payoff, like from second to second. But honestly, even from minute to minute, like there are diminishing returns. Yes. Like once you've scrolled Twitter for even like 45 seconds, particularly if you've already looked at it on a particular day, like it's not really giving you anything new. Like unless you happen to like be logged back on, you know, in time for some big news story to drop or something. But even then, it's like that story was going to be there regardless of whether or not you were on Twitter at that moment. Um, but so like another thing I started to do was having having delayed the kind of moment of opening my computer and looking at the internet for as long as possible. I would make sure to always do something, something, anything before opening Twitter or Facebook or anything like that. And like, not always work. I think one of the reasons this stuff, I mean, I feel almost a little bit bashful talking about it because I feel like stuff like this has been deeply interwoven with kind of like hustle culture and Silicon Valley and shit like that. Like, I don't want to, I don't want to sound like Jack Dorsey or something like that. But honestly, those people don't get to own like the attention span, you know, they don't get to own focus and enjoying yourself from minute to minute and being immersed in things. So I'm not, I'm not suggesting, you know, you open your computer and make sure you get a piece of work done, you know, first thing or something like that. Often I just send an email to a friend or a family member or something like that. You know, sometimes I'll read a few articles that I have queued up in tabs. And, you know, I find that repeating this ritual every day for a few weeks, it wasn't even that long. Basically, you know, I don't I don't have the incentive to engage with the Internet like I used to or to be as kind of obsessed with it as I used to be. I don't have the desire to do it. It's just, you know, it's just habit forming. And just in the same way that you form bad habits, you can you can form good ones. I think it's as simple as that. Anyway, we are rebranding as a self-help podcast. Coming up next, how to spice things up in the bedroom. (laughs) That's right, Tim. It's called the Internet, and it's a fresh new way to check out sites, buy clothing, and surf music. And it's all located on this tiny (laughs) CD-ROM. You bet, Eric. You know, my favorite thing about the Internet is that it's 100% secure. Wait a second, Tim. 
What about all my e-worms and my email viruses? <laughs> well, Eric, you can kiss your e-virus problems goodbye. Well, the proceeding wasn't a planned discussion, but Will and I like to banter a little bit at the beginning of the show. And because of that, you know, I'm often never sure to, how to segue into kind of the plan bits. But uh, something I was reminded about this week was a great anecdote that I heard for the first time uh, at the end of Michael Brooks's great book, Against the Web. So Michael is recalling a story by a, uh, a socialist and war resistor by the name of David McReynolds who was, quote, for decades a member of the now-defunct Socialist Party of America. The SPA had a long and proud history dating back to Eugene Victor Debs in the early 20th century. In its final decades, though, the party sometimes erred on the side of an exaggerated concern about Stalinism that led some of its leaders to downplay or ignore the far more real threat of American imperialism. This culminated in a split over the war in Vietnam, with some members supporting the intervention and some rejecting it. McReynolds, who was one of the very first people to publicly burn his draft card in 1965, saw on the right side of that split, just as he landed on the right side of just about every other major debate of the late 20th century. This story takes place in 1957, eight years before McReynolds burned his draft card. That year, the Soviet Union launched the Sputnik 1 satellite, which was the first human-made satellite to orbit Earth. McReynolds was watching coverage of the launch on a television in a bar in Greenwich Village, and in his excitement, ran outside and started a conversation with the first person he saw. We did it. What? Sputnik, we put something into the sky that didn't come down. You mean the Russians did? No, we. Us, the human race. Anyway, that's a that's a great anecdote that, you know, Michael uses in the final chapter of his book to talk about uh, the meaning and importance of, of socialist internationalism. But I was given cause to think about that story this week uh, because it was the anniversary of Yuri Gagarin, uh, of course, a few years after Sputnik 1, was the first person to travel into space. And because of that anniversary, I came across another story this week I hadn't heard of, which I think is incredible. Uh, this comes by way of the Working Class Movement Library, wcml.org.uk. The story is about a visit Yuri Gagarin paid to Manchester exactly three months after his flight in Vostok 1. And it's a pretty incredible story, this this cosmonaut visiting Great Britain at the height of the Cold War. The pictures included are also pretty incredible, and I just want to read a few paragraphs from this. The sheer scale of public enthusiasm for the visit, which came at the height of the Cold War, had elsewhere caught the authorities by surprise. The Macmillan government, which had initially been reluctant to invite the cosmonaut to Britain, hastily added an extra day to his schedule and offered a grudging official sanction to what had originally been conceived as a trade union-sponsored tour aimed at promoting economic cooperation between the East and West. Although Whitehall chose to remain aloof, the situation in Manchester was very different. Garin's visit to the city had been organized in advance under the auspices of the local trade union councils and received the blessing of the civic leaders who were only too happy to organize a lavish reception for him at the town hall. As the rain cleared, the red flag fluttered beside the Union Jack over Albert Square and a brass band struck up the national anthem of the USSR to welcome the arrival of the first cosmonaut. Against the background of the Berlin crisis, the escalating conflict in Vietnam and the abortive American invasion of Cuba, the spontaneous outpouring of popular sentiment in honor of a Soviet airman acting as an unofficial ambassador may at first sight appear incongruous. However, upon closer inspection, the reasons behind the genuine warmth of Gagarin's reception are not hard to discern. In marked contrast to the aging Soviet leadership, Yuri was young, dynamic, and glamorous. Possessing an unaffected charm and an outgoing personality, his fame rested securely on his own bravery, skill, and athleticism. 
After the drab years of post-war austerity, there seemed something almost magical about the first human to have broken the bounds of the Earth and viewed through the portholes of his spaceship a diamond field of shining bright cold stars. If Gagarin's popularity with the people of Manchester was undeniable, then the nature and long-term political significance of his visit was still in doubt and was to be hotly debated over the course of the next few weeks in the pages of the local and national press. Commentators from both the left and the right were agreed that the tour had done little to alter the domestic political landscape, to remove deeply held prejudices, or to prompt a thoroughgoing reassessment of Britain's Cold War alignment. However, the prestige of the labor movement as a whole and the Foundry Workers' Union in particular had been greatly enhanced by the presence of the youthful cosmonaut. Gagarin was a potent symbol of the power of organized labor and socialist thought. Born into a peasant family, he had served his time as a foundry apprentice before finding fame through his own efforts and sustained hard work. As both the product and expression of all that was best in the mature Soviet system, he seemed to represent the embodiment of the new socialist man and delighted his audience at the union offices by declaring that he was still a foundryman at heart. Presented with the honorary membership of the Foundry Workers Union and a medal bearing the hopeful inscription, Together Molding a Better World, Gagarin paid tribute to, quote, a union which ranks among the oldest in the world and has such fine traditions, before wishing its members, quote, every success in championing working class rights and interests and working for a world of peace. Um, so I posted this on Facebook and I actually discovered that a former colleague of mine uh, was actually there. <laughs> Uh, in Manchester. Was in Manchester at, at the time of this event. This is my former colleague, Andrew Jackson, formerly the chief economist at the Canadian Labour Congress. Uh, he told me that Gagarin was driven past his primary school and that everyone was allowed to go outside and, and uh, wave and, and cheer. Anyway, no particular reason for bringing that up, except that uh, I think it's a wonderful story. And it made me recall the equally wonderful story from uh, Michael's book, which I revisited again this week. You know what I like about a story like that? There, there are so many iconic moments that have happened in history. And then you find out there are people alive who actually lived through them and saw them. <laughs> I mean, there are people alive today who saw the Kennedy assassination. That is madness to me. <laughs> well, I can't quite tell if you're if you're joking or not, and and maybe you're not sure yourself. But I actually do think there's something <laughs> worth discussing there about you know like when does something kind of go from being sort of like a, a common lived experience to you know what we broadly call history. I mean, and and I feel like this has happened with a number of significant events over the course of our lifetime. I mean, you know, the two of us were both born in in 1989, right? I think we're just a couple months apart, right? Correct. And so I mean, there were things that were very much just kind of in the collective memory that. And, you know, significant events that had happened maybe 10 or 15 or 20 years before, you know, for people that were teenagers or, or you know, in their 20s or 30s or, or older, things like the Kennedy assassination, you know, I mean, that that's not like that long ago, right? Or the Cuban Missile Crisis or whatever. Sorry, these are all very like US centric examples. But this is a less weighty example. But you remember when we were about eight or nine, and they re-released all of the Star Wars movies, because it was the 20th anniversary of Star Wars. Well, when I was a kid, 1977 seemed like an impossibly long time ago. You know, right. that that seemed like ancient history. But I mean, I guess for most of the people who were alive at that time, that was a living right. memory. 12 years before you were born. I mean, not not that long. I mean, what was it's 2021. So 12 years ago, we were both working at U of T student paper. Like, <laughs> yeah. you know, it's not, it's not actually uh, in the grand scheme of things that much time. But, you know, like as we've gotten older, you know, the th kinds of things we're talking about have kind of like passed into history. I'm not sure what... what what we're to do with this information, but uh, but it's interesting to think 
about. Anyway, I just realized all we did just now is kind of a slightly more cerebral variation of that. What's that thing that people say about, yeah, did you know that more time has passed between the original airing of that 70s show and the present than the, the decade in which was said in the <laughs> pilot episode? Uh, let's put this to bed. Well, speaking of things that have uh, things that were once reality and have uh, gone into history. Uh, <laughs> no, boo. Boo, you don't like that? Uh, well, listen, folks. We have, we have a movie this week, and I'm not even going to bother with the transition. It's Pier Paolo Pasolini's The Gospel According to St. Matthew from 1964, one of the most uh, reverential depictions of the life of Christ, which was, of course, famously directed by a gay atheist Marxist. Non giudicate se non volete essere giudicati. Con quel giudizio col quale giudicherete sarete giudicati. E con quella misura con la quale misurerete sarete misurati. Perché osservi la pagliuzza che nell'occhio di tuo fratello, mentre della trave che nell'occhio tuo non t'accorgi? So, you know, this this is an interesting subject for the show. It's something that Will selected. Didn't surprise me initially because it's a Pasolini film. And of course, we've done Pasolini before. So uh, without knowing anything about the gospel, according to St. Matthew, I assumed that, you know, it, w- it would be extremely gross. There would be some sort of, you know, incredibly grotesque meta interpretation of parts of the Bible or something like that. Uh, but it's actually a, a deeply earnest film. Now, I've developed a kind of mode for, you know, watching films that we're going to talk about on the show and I found myself a bit unsettled because the film was so kind of earnest like there's no there's no subtext I'm so kind of in the business of excavating subtext and finding the layers of ideology that are you know buried beneath you know the romantic plot lines or the B story or whatever it is that watching this I made me realize that uh, it's definitely the most earnest thing that we've ever treated on the show and I'm interested in why you wanted us to do it. Well, I saw The Gospel According to St. Matthew for the first time, I think when I was in 12th grade. That was also the year when I actually read the Gospels through for the first time. I grew up Catholic, not exactly a devout Catholic or anything, but we went to church on Sundays. And I remember reading the Gospels and thinking that, you know, they were very compelling. You know, it was interesting to see how all of these famous stories fit together. And it was interesting to see how each Gospel kind of builds on the one before and they start to get a little bit more... I don't know if outlandish is the right word, but you start to see some more miracles as they go along. Like the nativity story isn't in the first two. It only kind of starts to appear later on. Actually, this is a bit of a digression, but watching this film reminded me of a moment from... I guess kind of the tail end of my annoying atheist phase, you know, the phase that seemingly all young men of a particular generation seem to go through. I guess this must have been in my late teens or maybe very early 20s, late teens, I hope. Um, And it was was, there was a debate at U of T between, you know, an atheist and a believer, you know, sort of like a down market version of one of those like Christopher Hitchens and Stephen Fry debating Ann Whittacombe and an archbishop, you know, those kind of things that were going viral at the time. And what was so incredible about this debate, it's like, of course, when we were asked to vote, I said that the atheist guy won. And, you know, the the debate was pretty much a a paint by the numbers. Like, you know, if you've watched one of these debates or 
you know, maybe two. You've kind of seen them all. It's like the atheist guy was like, well, so if you believe in this, why don't you believe in Thor and Odin? If you, you know, it was just people in all societies, even societies without religion, know not to murder. Why do we need an invisible man in the sky to tell us not to murder? I can't tell if that's supposed to be a late period Hitchens or Dawkins or a hybrid of the two. But yeah, that was pretty much, it was pretty much that. And what was funny about it is that the, uh, the Christian guy was actually the much better debater. He was quite effective until the moment in the debate when he decided that he was going to go all in on making this kind of scientific sort of empirical case for the existence of particular miracles, but rather than others. So he started talking about how there was all this historical evidence for, you know, yeah, particular miracles that are talked about in the Gospel of Matthew. And and, uh, and yeah, his, his case, uh, his case for me really collapsed. Well, when Christ walked on water, he was actually walking on the shallow part of the beach. So that's the scientific explanation for how that happened. I'm sure he mentioned that in the in the debate. <laughs> well, incidentally, it's kind of getting ahead of ourselves a little bit. But um, uh, when Pasolini was talking about the film later, it does sound like the only parts he really regretted were some of the miracles that you know were depicted like the bread and the fish and the uh you know i guess the walking on water part as well anyway maybe you can provide a little more background on this film and maybe talk a little bit more about why you wanted us to do it on the show well after reading the gospels and seeing the movie i found the gospels as i said compelling but also a little disquieting because they didn't seem like a good enough source to build a religion around you know, at least at least when I was in 12th grade, they seemed like unreliable documents to me. And then seeing this Pasolini film, which the big selling point of it, I guess you could say, is that in contrast to the other big Hollywood biblical epics of the time, the greatest story ever told or King of Kings or what have you, this one was more influenced by the Italian neorealist school, non-professional actors, real locations done in a style that has been described as almost quasi documentary Mm -hmm. and really foregrounding the material side of Christ's existence and being like, okay, if Christ actually existed, here's what it may have looked like. So when I was in 12th grade, it was, it was a depiction of Jesus that I felt like I could kind of get behind. Like if Jesus were to exist, this is the kind of thing I want to see, not one of those super Hollywood productions. And I was stirred to talk about it again this week because I was reading a Letterboxd review by former guest of the show, John Semley, where he said, and I'm going to quote from him a little bit, what this film is better at than any film about the life of Jesus is its depiction of what Pasolini called the nostalgia for belief. It's shot through with the pain of being a non-believer who aches unsentimentally for the comforts of belief. I feel this a lot myself, to be quite honest. And the film plays with this idea. When the disciples are lured away, we're asked to consider the reality that they are abandoning their families and their earthly duties because the promises of another false prophet seem more alluring. Jesus himself never appears as a figure of awesome power or genuine holiness. His words and acts inspire both because they offer a thoughtful analysis of the existing class conditions, and in large part because they're a reprieve from the drudgery and misery of daily life. Nobody killed Jesus for his blasphemies, but for rousing the rabble. Now, I mean, you can, I guess, quibble with or debate John Semley on some of the things he says. I mean, Pasolini said that he wanted to make the film from the eye of a believer. So he does depict some of the miracles, for instance. But there's something about the lack of sentimentality in the movie, uh, the matter-of-factness. I mean, I think it's a beautiful movie in many ways, but let's call it the ugliness of the movie. 
that makes it my favorite film about Jesus. Uh, and one of the only films about Jesus that I feel like in my lapsed Catholic way, I can kind of get behind almost spiritually. We've encountered this before when we've we've watched things together uh, in the past. I remember when we watched, when you introduced me to The Bad Lieutenant, you know, not, not The Bad Lieutenant, Port of Call, New Orleans, the, uh, the original. I remember you being incredibly moved by the nun character in that movie. And by the way, the film depicts the full implications of what embracing Christian doctrine really are and the the amount of sacrifice that that is potentially involved in that. I remember you being quite moved. I should say, you know, this is kind of rare. It's kind of rare to find this in Will because, you know, he is a very ironic person, as some of you may have noticed. (laughs) I'll give a little background into Pasolini because he's an interesting and rich figure. I mean, as I said, gay Marxist Catholic, even though I guess he was an atheist at this point, Uh, But he carried Catholicism as part of his identity. And you can imagine what a controversial figure he was in Rome at the time. Communist Party, very opposed to the church and vice versa, both very hostile to homosexuality at the time. In fact, in his life, I read that he was subject to as many as 33 lawsuits, including for obscenity, pornography, public disgrace, contempt of religion. He was acquitted of all of them, but it shows not only what a complex figure he was in Italian society, but also what a prominent figure he was. Uh, He didn't begin as a filmmaker. He began as a poet and then a novelist. I, I won't spend too much time on his background, but it's relevant to note that he was born in 1922, which is when Mussolini seized power. His father was an infantry lieutenant who was a fascist and his mother was an anti-fascist. So, I mean, you can imagine some of the disputes they may have had in their family. When Pasolini went off to study, he became a devout anti-fascist himself. And when he became a poet, he was very influenced by the ideas of Gramsci, the founder of the Italian Communist Party. I I think he eventually kind of moved beyond Gramsci's ideas, but Gramsci called for, you know, a a popular, socially conscious art for the people. As a filmmaker, he's one of those rare people where you can see a real intellectual and philosophical evolution. You know, he was heavily influenced in the early stages by neorealism, and he sort of synthesized his political and artistic influences in those early films. So movies like Akatone and Mama Roma, which are about street criminals and sex workers in the Italian slums. To give just a very quick summary of his politics, he was very concerned about the working classes, very critical of the bourgeoisie, as you can imagine, critical of the consumer society that emerged in Italy after the war. One of the things that's most interesting about his artistic practice is he wrote all of his poetry in a rural Italian dialect, which Mussolini, during his reign, had tried to outlaw. He tried to outlaw dialects that were not the main Italian dialect. And that's important to Pasolini's artistic practice because he was very concerned first how fascism and then how capitalism seemed to be steamrolling Italy's rich history, its manifold and varied communities and sub-histories, and particularly the workers, the farmers, the peasants, how their history seemed to be being steamrolled. I know that he identified as a communist, but was very critical of the Italian Communist Party. 
I'm sure that over the course of his life, he had a lot of takes that you or I might might take issue with. The most famous of them was that during the May 1968 student protests, uh, he wrote some things that were interpreted as sympathetic to the police. Yeah, although I, I looked into that mm. and there's there was an extensive debate after about what he actually meant. Perhaps uh, somebody listening is more familiar with this than we are. I looked into it a little bit. I mean, he was uh, sympathetic to the policeman because the policeman, he said, you know, I mean, you, you can imagine what the argument was. The policeman were, were the children of the proletariat, and uh, but the institution itself was bad. And, you know, he seems to have seems to have been on the right side of most police-related issues. And he is, after all, the man who made Sallow. And later in his career, charting his philosophical evolution to where it ended up, he made a trilogy of films that the Criterion Collection released, the Trilogy of Life, the Decameron, the Canterbury Tales, and the Arabian Nights. Are those good? I've always, you know, it's like the kind of thing you see on shelves and you think, oh, I should pick that up sometime, but I don't actually know anything about it. Oh, I quite like them. I mean, I'm I'm not sure if you would or not. I mean, you could go either way. They're very bawdy and vulgar films. I mean, I love the Decameron. I love the Can- Canterbury Tales. I've never read the Arabian Nights. Oh, but... then I'm sure you'll love these. I mean, I had the Canterbury Tales read to me in, in Middle English or like parts of them uh, when I was a kid. Well, then I think you'll like these films. I mean, they are very interested in the earthy side of these great folk tales. And what's also notable about these films is, is that he later disowned them. The idea with the films was to show mankind as it really is, as it really should be, before those domesticating forces of religion and the state came to tame the human body. And later on, he wrote this famous article rejecting those films, saying that he was he was naive in his faith in the fundamental innocence of the human body. Um, I, I think the films had also inspired all sorts of softcore pornographic imitators, too. And that eventually led to one of the most unsentimental depictions of the human body of all time, a sallow, which was kind of his response to <laughs> having having rejected <laughs> the trilogy of life. Just to wrap up this segment on Pasolini's thought, I'd like to read just a little bit from an article that was published in Art Forum in 2012 by Patrick Rumble which goes some way to describing his aesthetic project in film. And I think this will be relevant to the gospel according to St. Matthew. Patrick Rumble writes, When he turned to cinema in the 60s, he was attracted to motion pictures as a language that, like dialect, was not burdened with centuries of accumulated traditions or linguistic obligations— a visual language of great expressive energy that was universally accessible. For Pasolini, the language of poetry and poetic art, including the cinema, was one of great vitality that could reconnect the writer and his audience with the most elemental aspects of life. Indeed, Pasolini would come to argue that the language of cinema was perhaps the most poetic of all and could break through the conventions and cliches of culture, putting spectators in touch with reality itself. While, for example, the word tree written or spoken, is purely conventional, or arbitrary, as linguists say. The filmic image of a tree is indexically related to that tree, that is, to the thing itself. For Pasolini, a cinema of poetry can expose us to the things themselves in a way other languages and media cannot, which explains his almost mystical faith in the medium of cinema. To build on that point, Pasolini had an aesthetic style kind of like no one else. He had a melding of many different influences, whether it be documentary or neorealism or uh, the history of painting. 
I know the gospel according to St. Matthew is as much influenced by uh, the history of Italian Renaissance painting as it is the neorealist school. And so his particular cinema of poetry, he, he regarded it as a resistance to commercial narrative film because it was a melding of so many styles and influences from all over the place. I know that Fellini, with whom he worked briefly early in his career, uh, didn't quite get what Pasolini was going for, felt the early films looked a little bit amateurish. But in following his style, they resulted in films that really didn't and don't look like anyone else's. The movie, as you say, it's very much in the vein of kind of Italian neorealism. You know, if people have seen The Bicycle Thieves, which I guess is the is the neorealist movie that everybody thinks about, you know, you'll, you'll kind of know what we're talking about here. It is just a kind of straight rendering of the most famous stories in the Gospel of Matthew. Um, in fact, I think the script is just directly taken out of the Gospel itself, right? Because Pasolini felt that the words themselves didn't need any kind of further stylization. That's right. And people always describe this as like the Marxist Christian film, which I guess it is, but you may have to go looking for that because it is such a faithful adaptation of the gospel. I feel like whenever I watch it, I I keep expecting it to be a little bit more incendiary than it is. I keep expecting him to accent the material just a little bit more. But it's important, I think, to consider it in reference to the other Christian films that were being made at the time. You look at the greatest story ever told and every scene has this oppressive weight Like, it feels like it's moving in slow motion. And in particular, the weight is always on the miracles. It's always on, you know, turning the water into wine. And there's always, you know, blaring music. Crowds of people looking at him and being amazed that he's done such things. Yeah, incidentally, the the sort of epics of that era, like, I've never been able to sit through most of those. Like, the Ten Commandments I've never been able to sit through. Or, I mean, I know this isn't exactly quite the same category of film, and maybe I'll get canceled for this, but... Ben Hur never been able to, <laughs> never been able to get through it. To be honest, it all it all has that look you're describing, where like every scene is the visual equivalent of a wailing guitar solo, which Pasolini's film patently is not. And what's funny about those films too is you know everyone is always so impressed by Jesus, except for the straw man rabbis and Romans who are just there to be like, <laughs> oh, you can't have a guy performing miracles around here. We better kill him. Uh, <laughs> And Jesus is always the biggest cipher. He's the most boring character of all time. In Pasolini's film, he's played by a guy called Enrique Irizoiqui. I'm sorry, I don't know how to pronounce his name. But, you know, he's a kind of ugly, handsome guy. He's a tough, angry Jesus. A Jesus of a certain kind of charisma, but also a Jesus with a kind of demagogic side. You know, he's a Jesus with sharp edges. And you can see the edges get a little sharper as the movie goes along, up to and including, you know, the famous fight in the temple with the moneylenders. The Hollywood movies always give such great emphasis to the miracles, and this movie shows the miracles, but I I think the miracles are kind of, they certainly have less screen time than all the scenes of him delivering his sermons. There's a, I want to say, 10-minute segment where it is just Christ giving different sermons. Like, it'll be in kind of different settings, the weather will be different, 
Um, and it just kind of flashes from one to another. It's actually in some ways quite a powerful sequence. Yeah, it's extraordinary. And I mean, that's ultimately what the movie is about. You alluded to earlier that Pasolini expressed some regret having depicted the miracles in the film. I don't know quite where I stand on that. Well, the miracles, as you say, are are pretty stripped down. Mm -hmm. There's not a lot of kind of opulence to the way he portrays them. And I know that the film, like it was picketed by right-wing Catholics, but... But the, the Vatican approved of it, right? I believe they did, yes. But, you know, you can't please everybody with any film about Christ. But there were also a lot of left-wing critics who felt that Pasolini shouldn't have made the film, felt that, you know, this this is the work of a reactionary. This is the work of someone who's not in touch with the current age, that kind of thing. It sounds like what my, you know, critique would have been age 17. Yeah. I think that one of the challenges Pasolini takes on with this movie and that really anybody who makes a movie about Jesus takes on is how to make the story relevant, how to make the story feel current. And different artists use different strategies for that. Martin Scorsese in The Last Temptation of Christ did this unusual thing where it's set in olden times and everybody's dressed as they would be in that time, but they all talk with New York accents. Has anyone done like a Baz Luhrmann style, like Baz Luhrmann and like <laughs> Romeo and Juliet style? Oh man, I, I, w- I would love to see that. Well, I mean, have you ever seen The Passion of the Christ, by the way? I've never seen it, no. Oh, we should definitely watch it because, I mean, whenever you would see Mel Gibson interviewed about that film, he would talk as if he was trying to do, you know, something similar, but for from a different angle to what Pasolini was doing, you know, like show Jesus as it really was. Uh, show show Christ suffering, because that's ultimately what Mel Gibson was interested in. He was interested in the suffering. Take it or leave it. I have seen the South Park parody, so <laughs> I know that part of it. But what's funny is like, it's the most Hollywood movie about Jesus ever, you know, even more so than the, the old ones from the 60s, because like Jesus gets whipped for 15 minutes, and then he like struggles and he stands up and he does a heroic pose like he's a fucking action star. Right. You know, it's like it's the kitschiest Christ movie ever made, even though, you know, they're speaking in Aramaic and it has all this pretense to realism. And in this movie, I feel Pasolini kind of struggling with the challenge a bit and trying to find a way to respect Christ as a historic figure, but also a man of our times. And I think he does as good a job as you can do. I I mean, I think the way that he does it is through the visual style of the film, just in emphasizing the material reality of his existence. And also certain bizarre stylistic choices, like every now and then he'll throw in a strange anachronistic musical cut. I mean, there's like a sort of gospel blues with slide guitar and stuff like that, as well as classical music. Also, the scenes at the end when Christ is on trial, isn't it strange that he films those as if he's like a newsreel cameraman? Like he films it in the crowd and you see Jesus and the rabbis and the Romans from a distance and you can kind of barely hear what they're saying. You know, I love The Last Temptation of Christ. I think it's a very beautiful movie and maybe the second best film of about Jesus. But some of Scorsese's artistic decisions in it, I think, play better in theory than practice. I'm thinking of like Harvey Keitel's New York accent, for instance. And so to me, like, this is the movie that more than any other makes Jesus and his teachings seem relevant in the current moment, and gives me a sort of point of entry into him that doesn't pander, you know, that that doesn't compromise, that lets Jesus be Jesus. I wrote down a couple Christ quotes from the film, you know, and I've heard these before, but like there were some that I really liked. You can serve God or money, not both, obviously. One that always bugged me, and I wrote it down because it bugged me, is the whole render unto Caesar thing. Render unto Caesar that which is Caesar, render unto God that which is God's. That irritated me so much, and I I feel like I've been irritated by it in the past. 
it irritated me so much that I actually like looked up some of the debates around it. And I mean, it does seem like there's significant interpretive debate around what that is supposed to mean. I always kind of assumed it was something that was like maybe added 500 years later in some some later draft of the Bible because there was an emperor or a king <laughs> who was kind of like... I don't know. You got you got to put something in here to appease me, guys. I mean, yeah, I, I went down a real rabbit hole with this and looking, you know, like, like there's debate, like historical debate around like what were the coins that would have been in circulation that Christ would have looked at? Was he looking at a picture of Augustus or Tiberius or, or what? But, but anyway, that quote really bugs me because it's so incredibly vague and it can be interpreted in so many ways, some of them which I think are quite progressive and some of which are, I think are quite reactionary. I mean, the reactionary interpretation is just that like... Christ was telling you to respect temporal authority in some, you know, like it's like the most conservative reading of it is, you know, our faith actually has nothing to do with any of this. You know, it's it's kind of a transcendent and personal thing which you negotiate within yourselves. And it doesn't actually necessitate that you engage yourself in kind of political life or, or that the good life as explained in Christian teachings has any kind of a, a political dimension or, or something like that. You know, I suppose there's a middle interpretation, which is just, you know, it's it's a case, it's a basic case for kind of separation between church and state. So, you know, it's a proto-secularist kind of idea. Um, I guess another interpretation is that Christ was merely trying to delineate between Christian faith and temporal matters. So he's trying to, you know, emphasize a pillar of Christianity that appears throughout Christian belief, and I guess all monotheistic belief, which is just the idea that you know, the kingdom of heaven transcends the base, it transcends the kingdom of heaven, the, the city of God, you know, transcends the base, it transcends, you know, the temporal and the material. And you can do an awful lot with that, obviously, because I mean, it doesn't mean that you can't live a, a political life, it doesn't mean you can't do good deeds, it just means that no matter what happens, you always have the kingdom of heaven, you always have the city of God to fall back on, which is a very powerful kind of animating principle, both for individual life, and I think for kind of common social life as well. But the quote bugs me because it really could mean any of these things. But so, you know, the reactionary interpretation, I'm just imagining, you know, like, you know, a modern American conservative using it as kind of a justification for absolutely obscene inequality or, you know, opposition to tax reform or... Well, I'll tell you a line that always uh, annoyed me and which I did not uh, do any research into the, I'm sure, centuries of debate that have swirled around it. But it's when some poor person comes and, you know, puts oils in Jesus's hair because apparently that was a luxurious thing that people did back then have have oil put in their hair i don't know and uh, judas looks on and says uh and i'm quoting directly from him here yo jesus why are you letting him do that uh instead instead of buying oils shouldn't we be using that money to help poor people and jesus says the poor will always be with you now that's one of those iconic famous lines which you know of course if you do a cursory google search you'll find a lot of people who say well actually what jesus meant was that uh uh jesus was was meaning to shame us because we the poor will always be with us and therefore we always have to help the poor and i don't know maybe maybe there's some truth to that but what it seems to me like is is what he's saying is give me a break okay i'm helping the poor all day the poor will always be with us let me have some oils put in my hair. And I find that a not particularly helpful message coming at that juncture of the Bible. This is only tangentially related, but I remember one of the things when I was an annoying teenage atheist, one of the kind of, I guess, historical investigations I did that helped kind of cure me of that particularly irritating phase of my intellectual life 
it actually came through studying Canadian politics because I studied under this professor who taught a branch of political science, I suppose you might call political sociology. And his method, which is a very interesting one, still influenced me a great deal to this day. Um, it involved looking at census data, first and foremost, census data, other data as well of different migration waves to explain, you know, so where did people come from and what, what ideas, what value systems did they bring with them when they came to, you know, North America, especially, but, but Canada in particular, and how did those value systems then interact and how did that produce different political cultures in different parts of the country, different locales, uh, specific provinces? How did that produce what we broadly think of as Canadian political culture? And one of the particular examples that I came across involved a comparison between what the political culture looked like in Alberta. And I mean, to some extent still looks like or, you know, part of Albertan political culture still looks like this uh, compared to how it looked in other parts of the prairies like Manitoba and Saskatchewan. And, you know, this is obviously a pretty uh, a pretty complex issue, so I don't want to trivialize it. But the basic idea was that uh, a lot of settlement in Alberta happened by way of the land in the American West running out and these kind of settlers who were steeped in a sort of manifest destiny philosophy and, and also a particular kind of Christianity, a sort of, I guess, Pentecostalism. I may be, though I may be getting that wrong. It's been it's been a few years. Um, you know, they ended up settling in what is now uh, in what is now Alberta, whereas the kind of Christianity that proved more influential in places like Saskatchewan and, and Manitoba, the type of Christianity that the early socialist pioneers in Canada, people like J.S. Woodsworth and Tommy Douglas, that, that they championed, it had this idea of social gospel, which was all about, you know, doing God's work um, in temporal ways. So you do God's work by helping the poor, you do God's work by crusading for for a better world, by organizing an idea that was very very influential in um, the sort of early history of Canada's labor movement and, and in, you know, the early leadership of, of the CCF and to some extent the NDP as well. Um, so this was this was an idea of Christianity where following Christ means uh, to help man, whereas the more kind of conservative Christianity in a place like Alberta, as it then was, uh, was much more uh, built around the idea of doing Christ's teachings is to save man. So Albertan political culture for decades was very hierarchical as a result. You know, it was it was like it was right wing populism it was steeped in kind of the language of like Bible thumpers. Uh, there was a guy, Bible Bill Aberhart, who was a, a like a radio evangelist who I think was premier of Alberta at one point. Anyway, I want to talk about uh, more about these studies in the future because they were a big part of uh, how I came to think about things. But believe it or not, at the time, I think I was probably 20 or 21 when I was first introduced to this way of thinking about political culture. Examples like this really did help disabuse me of the sort of idea that I had picked up from books like God is Not Great or The God Delusion, that religious belief is this kind of uniform thing. Um, that a religious text is is a literal document that you it's like a menu it's an instruction manual uh, that tells you uh, exactly what to do and that the only correct reading of it is the most kind of literalist uh, interpretation of it imaginable it was like okay well here's two groups of Christians and one group is socialist and and the other is reactionary so clearly there's something I was not understanding here <laughs> Well, I wanted to talk a little bit about a story I did this week. 
I mean, I've shared many times, you know, my experiences going to uh, right-wing conferences, uh, the, the Manning Conference, which is the big or formerly the big uh, gathering of Canada's movement conservatives. And it, it returns to me every time I'm, I'm writing or thinking about conservatism or the right at all. And that happened again this week. I don't know if I've ever talked about the Manning Conference from this uh, particular angle, but I remember that one of the things that, I mean, blew my mind and, and in a sense, quite impressed me the very first year I attended was the way in which people, you know, not just attendees, but actually people speaking from the stage would really speak openly about power and how politics was just a quest for power. And, you know, that they had these values that they were trying to actualize in a world which was often quite hostile to them. So, for example, I remember one speaker talking, he kept using this phrase about value neutral political technology and how important it was. I remember thinking that was quite incredible. I mean, both because he used the phrase phrase value neutral, but even just referring to political communications as technology in that in that way. I mean, I, I mean, it was just so incredible because it made explicit that, you know, what he was talking about was, you know, just persuasion by any means necessary. You know, the, the, the values that he wanted to advocate preceding the technology as opposed to uh, proceeding from it. You know, I think about that experience a lot, partly because I think on the left, sometimes there's a tendency, I mean, this has gotten a lot better in recent years, um, at least in certain quarters, but I think there's a tendency to think about power in sometimes overly abstract terms. And let me tell you, that is not what the right does at all. They are very tangible and concrete and results-based. Even the fiercest right-wing ideologues are often very keen uh, incrementalists, like they're totally happy uh, you know, they know that they're not going to like abolish trade unions overnight and they're perfectly happy to just make like tiny gains, infinitesimal little steps towards, uh, you know, their goal, you know, whatever awful thing it happens to be. But I guess another way of putting this is that there was no real, there's no pretense to much of what I heard at these events. I mean, they were just kind of talking very openly. Uh, you know, it was, it was kind of conservatism in its in its natural habitat, I suppose. There, there weren't a lot of inhibitions or reservations. Even I mean, these are not these are not secret events. I mean, the, you know, the press galleries there. Uh, this is like a big marquee political event that lots of people on the Hill, not all of them conservatives, uh, attended. Anyway, the reason I was thinking about it this week is because uh, I wrote a short piece about a, a new recording that was obtained by Jane Mayer at The New Yorker. Jane Mayer is somebody who's uh, written at least one important book about dark money. And uh, this recording basically features a bunch of uh, you know right-wing operatives, somebody that works for a Coke outfit, uh, who's kind of the main person speaking on the call, uh, uh, Grover Norquist is on the call. There's a policy advisor to Mitch McConnell. Uh, and what they're talking about is uh, this voting rights bill, H.R. 1, uh, House Resolution 1, which passed the House in early March, 234 to 193. This was largely along party lines, if not uh, entirely along party lines. The bill is, I mean, at least as written, is potentially very significant. Uh, Ari Berman um, for Mother Jones, who I've uh, who I interviewed once, and who's kind of uh, you know he's one of the leading experts in the media on voting rights. He, he called this bill the most significant democracy reform bill since the Voting Rights Act, um, and it would do all kinds of things. It would it would be automatic national voter registration, expanded mail in voting, independent commissions, at least for the districting of, of house districts. Like in Canada, electoral districts are drawn by they're drawn independently, like they're not something that uh, are drawn up by party politicians, and so. Like we don't have these incredibly uh, weirdly shaped districts uh, that that you have in in the United States, where I mean, pe- I'm sure people have seen these these house districts that literally just like 
I mean, they make no sense. They don't correspond to anything that anyone could plausibly argue is like, you know, a natural boundary for a particular neighborhood or anything like that. They're literally just how can the party in question, often the Republican Party, you know, how can you draw the boundary so this district is going to favor them? So it cracked down on that. And also there are some measures to limit the influence of dark money and to kind of create more transparency among, you know, who's giving to political parties and and that kind of thing, Um, at least when it comes to large donors. So you know, Jane Mayer at uh, The New Yorker got a hold of this recording, um, and she wrote a report about it, which uh, I'd recommend people read. It's called Inside the Coke-Backed Effort to Block the Largest Election Reform Bill in Half a Century. And, you know, she notes a couple things in it. Um, she, you know, she talks about, uh, you know, in public, the Republican opposition to this legislation. It's sort of been about how H.R. 1 is, the, and I can't remember, it's called, you know, it has some other title like the For the People Act or something like that. But, you know, H.R. 1, you know, according to Ted Cruz, is, quote, a brazen and shameless power grab by Democrats. Um, Republicans have kind of portrayed it as quite unpopular in public as well. Now, back to the, the recording here. The rec- so the recording is this conference call where these operatives are scheming. And, uh, you know, the reason I thought of uh, my Manning conference experiences uh, when I heard the recording is that, you know, in some ways, they're very much in the same vein. I mean, there is just this kind of explicit talk about, like, we have to stop this by any means necessary. And they're completely unconcerned and unashamed to kind of talk openly about their hostility to democracy. So the main guy who's speaking on the call is this fellow, uh, Kyle McKenzie, who is the research director at Stand Together, which is a Coke-run group. Um, And he's basically detailing this analysis that his outfit did um, around public perceptions of HR1. And at the beginning, you know, he's quite sort of mournful. He's quite apologetic. I mean, he's trying to put he's trying to put on a brave face, but uh, you know, the analysis did not give him many reasons to smile. You know, basically, he's trying to advise these people on like the do's and don'ts, in his words, about mass public communications uh, surrounding the bill. And basically, his top line findings were that, and this is a direct quote. He says, "When presented with a very neutral description of HR one, people were generally supportive. The most worrisome part is that conservative." were actually as supportive as the general public was when they read the neutral description of H.R. 1. There's a very large chunk of conservatives who are supportive of these types of efforts. And then so he then says that because the legislation is so popular, he says that uh, Republicans are going to have to rely on what he calls under the dome type strategies. And he says, we'll have to do that because, quote, winning over public support for this is actually incredibly difficult. Uh, He then proceeds to tell people don't engage directly with the talking points that the proponents of the bill have because basically when people hear, and this is another direct quote, I should stop summarizing because the direct quotes are actually even more precise than anything I could say. He says, unfortunately we found that, you know, stopping billionaires from buying elections, which is the frame that proponents have adopted, is, quote, a winning message for both the general public and also conservatives. So then having told people this sort of top-line findings, he then he then starts talking about, and this is where, like, I just burst out laughing. He starts talking about how, you know, they tried to, like, workshop this with some like just standard like red meat conservative stuff to see if just anything would stick and he's like uh we tried tying it to aoc we tried just like somehow nebulously (laughs) connecting it to aoc's name and it's like that didn't really work we tried attaching the phrase cancel culture to it and he said unfortunately that really ranked near the bottom he says that was definitely a little concerning for us anyway the whole recording can be found uh, embedded in the jane Mayer piece but I, I think this is pretty incredible i mean just you know the glimpse into what it sounds like when these people talk behind closed doors 
just they're not being any pretense or kind of hesitancy around the fact that they are you know just openly talking about like how do we defeat the fact that like stopping billionaires from buying elections is really popular across the board like that that's just like an annoying obstacle to be be overcome and i have to say like i don't know what the equivalent conversation to this would be in a left-wing setting but i do feel like there is uh, much more hesitancy on the left to kind of speak in such coldly instrumental terms and it's incredible to hear how few inhibitions these people have uh, about anything they're saying. Grover Norquist at one point chimes in and he says something about, you know, the efforts to to attack the freedom movement or something like that. It, re- it really is like that scene in that episode of Simpsons, is it Camp Krusty? Where like Nelson Muntz and his henchmen are like just like toasting with the guy who runs the camp and they're just like, gentlemen to evil (laughs) i was watching this great anti-communist movie from the 50s recently called (laughs) my son john uh, a very entertaining film by the great leo mccary and one of the most viciously (laughs) anti-communist movies of the 50s and you know the plot of it was that like what you you like is that there are no pyrotechnics it just shows anti-communism stripped down in a neorealist style i'm telling you leo mccary knows how to tell a story (laughs) um and we could use a lot of that in film these days it's like this this suburban family mom and dad america and they've got three kids and you know two of the kids have gone off to fight in the korean war but they've got this third kid who's been to university and he's been saying some very strange things like you know at one point they're hanging around and they're talking and uh, they're talking about christopher columbus and he says you know i bet a lot of the people who were here in this country uh, before columbus came don't think of him too kindly and then somebody says huh that's funny never thought of that and you know he keeps dropping incredible bits of wisdom like that. And and then, of course, you find out that eventually he's been working as a communist spy. Um, of course, that's the only reason anybody would think uh, think that way about Christopher Columbus. Well, there's there's a huge like, is he or isn't he drama that's going on throughout the whole movie? Like, is he just a kid with like pretty good progressive politics or is he actually a spy? And then at the end, it turns out he's a spy. And what I love about the movie so much is that the movie can't actually argue any of the points he makes because every single point he makes is great. A great accidental leftist film. Um, <laughs> So ultimately, what it becomes about is not communism versus capital, but communism versus the family unit and also the church, which he's left behind. (laughs) And everything is good until he destroys his family and he disavows the church. And then that's that's the problem. I mean, that's just it, right? It's like when right wingers are just unfiltered, they end up making like the socialist worldview just seem like really, really cool. It's like it's like this Koch brother apparatchik just like explaining to these Republican operatives. It's like, oh, yeah, well, we, we read we read to people a neutral description of this bill that stops billionaires buying elections. And unfortunately, they said, great. (laughs) Sign me up. Now watch this drive. Jesus Christ was a man that traveled through the land, hardworking man and brave. He said to the rich, give your goods to the poor. So they laid Jesus Christ in his grave. Yes, Jesus was a man, a carpenter by hand, his followers true and brave. One dirty coward called Judas Iscariot has laid poor Jesus in his grave. He went to the preacher, he went to the sheriff, told them all the same. Sell all of your jewelry and give it to the poor So they laid Jesus Christ in his grave 
When Jesus come to town, the working folks around believed what he did say. The bankers and the preachers, they nailed him on a cross, and they laid Jesus Christ in his grave. Now the working people followed him around, sang and shouted gay. But the cops and soldiers nailed him in the air And they laid Jesus Christ in his grave Well, the people held their breath when they heard about his death Everybody wondered why It was the landlord and the soldiers that he hired To nail Jesus Christ in the sky this song was made in New York City Of rich mans and preachers and slaves If Jesus was to preach like he preached in Galilee They would lay Jesus Christ in his grave Yes, Jesus was a man and a carpenter by hand His followers true and brave one dirty coward called Judas Iscariot has laid poor Jesus in his grave.